Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, from the moment we have even a small understanding of money, most of us believe that being wealthy means financially successful. In practice, wealth means something different to each of us, and we each must undergo a personal journey to reach that understanding. We are in a tough situation as a society. As the economy inflated, our expectations inflated as well. It's difficult to overcome peer pressure when we are young, and it's just as hard when we are older. We never learned how to manage money in school, and we were conditioned into a certain lifestyle by our parents based on how they were raised. You see, our idea of wealth may change throughout our life, and our plan should reflect those changes. Just like a diet, you have a, you know, a plan to follow to achieve real wealth, but it's about making behavioral changes and shifting your mindset. Start by asking yourself how you want to spend your time and whom you want to spend your time with. We all need an occasional reminder of the goals we've set and the reasons we've chosen our paths. You will enjoy my guest today as he's been down this road and he has figured it out. It's my pleasure to welcome Daniel Amaduri to the show. Daniel is a self-made multimillionaire and a full-time skeptic of conventional thought. And he's also a proud father of three. He is the co-founder of Future Money Trends, a newsletter with nearly 150,000 subscribers, which is unbelievable. It is one of the most widely recognized online authority sites and channels in the investment area, as well as a site where you can get economic advice. Daniel has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, on ABC World News Tonight, on Russian Today TV. He has correctly predicted the collapse of Lehman Brothers, AIG, and Washington Mutual on his Victory Channel back in the day. And his YouTube channel was launched back in 2007, which now has more than 13 million views. And he can correct me if it's a lot more than that now. And I can also proudly say that I've been a fan, friend, and subscriber of his for nearly 10 years. So Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. and love the name and love the concept of the entire show. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, I met you a long time ago. We, I think we first met in Palm Springs, and um, I've always been fascinated by all the topics that you talk about on your show and the things that you do. And, you know, you're just, uh, you're, you're a guy who's young, successful, you got your head screwed on right, you know, you've got a great family, you travel the world. Tell us a little bit more about yourself because you're, you're really just a well-rounded person. You know, I've always been fascinated with money, even as a kid and five years old and never materialism, just was always interested in it, always preferred reading uh, personal finance books and self-help stuff from Tony Robbins over going to school. And uh, it just, that was my whole life. I just was fascinated by it. And I got very lucky despite having uh, lost a lot of money, even though I accurately predicted the collapse and it even bought puts, I had a lot of foreclosures during that, that time. And uh, I got very lucky that I started YouTube as a hobby and it turned ultimately and evolved into a business. So I'm very grateful for Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates <laughs> and everybody who made the uh, personal computer and internet possible for us. Yeah, no kidding. That's awesome. So we're going to talk a little bit about your book here today, and I've, I've actually looked at a manuscript copy of it and uh, thumbed through it and started reading bits and pieces of it. So there's a lot of stuff in there that resonated with me. So 
we can talk a little bit more about the book as we go. But one of the things you talk about, first of all, for those people who don't know, the name of the book is Don't Save for Retirement, which I just absolutely love that title. And I've never liked the idea of retirement because really of two things, you know, first of all, why stop doing something that you really like to do, assuming that it's something that you enjoy in the first place, right? But secondly, I think the word retirement almost implies that you're looking forward to something, something better and you're only putting up with something that you're doing today and for however many years, because ultimately you're going to get to this place of bliss called retirement. So how do you see retirement and, and does retirement even make sense in today's day and age? You know, I see retirement as a failable experiment. A lot of people assume that it's been around forever and it hasn't. You can say there's, there were some pension funds for uh, Roman soldiers. Uh, but then there, you skip like 800 years, and then you go back to the uh, the Germans in the late 1800s, and you'll see that the only reason they even have the age 65 is because these two German politicians were running against each other. One had 70, the other had 65, trying to win an election. So the entire retirement cartel that we have today, essentially, where they're separating people from their money and convincing them to defer their happiness and joy and enjoyment of their money for 30, 40 years and speculate with that money in the stock market. Look, it's an entire industry. They're making a fortune uh, from the fees, from the vehicles, from the 401ks, from this entire strategy. They have convinced the middle class to not invest and save like the rich. And it's a real crime because the generation that had the most success with it, you know, it's like the top of any pyramid. I mean, you look at the first person who put in $28 uh, in Social Security, they end up getting like 30000 40000 back over their lifetime. So of course it worked out for that first go. Now then you got the baby boomers who had the best setup ever with the bond market, the stock market, the real estate market. And even the ones that were high income earners, they had to live like peasants to have enough safer retirement. And for the most part, over half of them, according to Fidelity, it's not even working for them anyway. Uh, so for the millennials and Gen Xers and baby boomers still out there looking to become financially independent, there's a much better way. And I think it's a much better life. The millennials have that trend, you know, but they've overcorrected. They've gone to minimalists or living in vans. You don't need to do that. You can enjoy a great life right now and you can live the life of a retiree, whether you're working or are not working, by having a focus on what the wealthy invest. So in your book, you talk about this overspending epidemic that we have in our country. And this is kind of a segue to what you were just talking about, because, you know, when you you mentioned millennials and I first of all, let me ask you this question. Is the book geared towards millennials? Because, you, you know, that's the subtitle of the book. No, you know, it, it's because I'm a millennial and I just wanted to show up because the reason I added that part in is because so many people, baby boomers and millennials are writing this generation off like it's the deck is stacked against us. And I think that's ridiculous. I think the deck is like stacked for us. I mean, what generation could start a business for $10 on GoDaddy? What generation could start being a professional driver tonight for Uber or build an entire empire on a social media and YouTube? I think the millennials and, and freelancing, the millennials have it perhaps better than previous generations. And so I just wanted to like say, hey, wake up, millennials. But the book is, of course, for everybody. Well, especially today, you know, in the so-called information age, we have access to information at our fingertips in our pocket through our our smartphone. So, you know, the ability for us to be able to set up a business in literally one day and be able to market to a market of 8 billion people worldwide is is unprecedented. It's never happened in the history of humanity. So 
there really is an excuse to not be an entrepreneur today. But one of the chapters in your book, you talk about overspending, you know, this overspending epidemic in our country. And even without, you know, the crazy one and a half trillion dollar student debt problem that we have, I don't think you're talking about $5 Starbucks coffees here as an overspending epidemic. So what do you mean by the overspending epidemic? What is that? There's an acceptance and normalcy that it is normal because your neighbors are doing it and your friends are doing it, your mom and dad doing it, your sister and brother are doing it, that a five to seven year, eight year auto loan is normal. That if you make $50,000 a year, it's perfectly normal to buy a forty dollars to $50,000 car. That if you make $100,000 a year, it's perfectly normal to go out and get a six hundred dollars to $800,000 home. There's a lot of things that people think are normal, but it's not and it shouldn't be. And you're right. You know, when people talk about the lattes, saving money on lattes, that's what frustrated me. That's how I even learned how to do some real deep cutting when I needed to and back in 2009 and 2010 was because I would go on the internet and there was so much frustration that all the savings advice is, oh, switch your checking account, uh, switch your credit card, you know, stop drinking coffee. I'm like, okay, now what? I've saved $25. <laughs> now what do I do? I'm a thousand in the hole. And that's when I really got into deep cutting that I talk about in the book, that if you move, whether you're an, an LA officer and you need to move 20 more minutes into the suburbs, or if you're somebody who can actually move out of state and really save money if you're in California, the moving is going to be your best savings. You know, I, I did crazy things. I mean, we, we stopped eating meat. We got rid of our pets. I mean, we did stuff that was probably unacceptable to a lot of people. But we, we did that short-term sacrifice. And it's not a permanent lifestyle. This isn't minimal, minimalism I'm advocating for. These documentaries now on Netflix. I am not advocating for that. I'm saying, yeah, you might have a year, 18 months, maybe even two years of sucking it up. But it compounds rather quickly. What happened with my wife and I, the combination of extremely cutting expenses and paying off debt with the combination of buying passive income, it ended up balancing itself out rather quickly. We were able to do it rather fast over our time because we were so aggressive about it. I mean, we did stupid things. I mean, we left the beautiful city of Glendora, California, where everybody, all of our friends were buying $500,000 homes. And we moved to the desert and we bought a $95,000 house. We were living like poor people. But it allowed us to, to hit reset on our entire financial uh, life. And today, I mean, we're very, very happy and, and financially free. So you're not necessarily advocating extreme budgeting and living incredibly frugal for the sake of saving your way to wealth, because I don't believe in that concept. I don't, I don't think it's financially or physically possible to save yourself into riches or wealth. You're just saying that you're cutting back and taking extreme measures for a fixed period of time so you can take those savings and deploy them into passive income streams. Absolutely. And that's exactly it. So if I was just to save it, and let's say I just wanted to buy gold, or I just wanted to buy, put the money in the 401k or the stock market, those are speculations that you're just hoping they'll go up. That's not what you want to do. You want to start putting it in things that are actually bringing money into your life. You know, you should check your mailbox every week and there should always be something there for you. You should log on to your checking account and wow, nice, the rental property company, HCH, the next uh, profit check. That's the type of lifestyle you should seek. In my opinion, with Don't Save for Retirement, the book, that's what I put in there. The journey my wife and I went through, what we learned, and exactly what we're investing in. It's simple stuff. If you really think about it, 
The middle class is in a rush to get rich. So they're constantly speculating, hoping somebody will pay more for whatever they bought. The rich, they don't have that fear in them because they're rich. So what do they do? They protect, preserve, and buy cash flow, constantly capturing more income. And that's the name of the game. And if you can condition your brain to do that, you will live a very fulfilled and free life. Because ultimately, wealth to me is control of your time and where you're, what you're going to do today. Exactly. Exactly. I wholeheartedly believe that. So is, is this problem spread out across all age groups or is it confined from what you see to a particular demographic? No, as Americans, I can only speak for Americans. Uh, it's widespread. It doesn't matter what age specifically because we've had such a debt-fueled and consumption-driven economy that it's been conditioned into us that it's very normal to finance things or to accept the credit cards. Or look at our kids today, you know, over a trillion dollars. I think it's like $1.5 trillion now, actually. It, 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 I mean, it went from like $600 billion to $1.5 trillion in just a few years because they're so willing to just borrow money. It's what everybody else does, and that's the problem. In order to do this, you really have to overcome some societal peer pressure. I know my wife and I, when we were in our crazy saving phase, our friends said, hey, let's all pitch in 125 bucks and do a limo ride and do wine tasting. And we said, no. And so then some of them said, hey, well, we'll pay for you if you can't afford it. I'm like, no, no, it's not that I can't afford it. At this moment in my life, I've just chosen not to. Because at the time, our priority was number one, don't not be poor. Just think about the mindset in 09, 2010. Number two... My wife wanted to quit her job because we had just had a, a newborn. We had our first child. So it was very important to her and myself that, you know, we needed to liberate ourselves so that we could live the life we really wanted. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's not that you're implying that everybody live frugally and budget to an extreme. You're not, you're saying that, but you're not implying that that has to be kind of deep cutting and for a long period of time. Your, your solution is to cut back for however long it takes for you to get on your feet to start creating those passive streams of income, because that's when you can start to springboard this forward. Did I summarize what everything you just said in the last five minutes that way? Yes. Okay, beautiful. All right, so let's take that forward. Let's move that forward. I like how you talk about you know, people's investment strategy or investing strategy being stuck in the 80s. I, I, I had to read that twice because I didn't know what you meant. And that alone, after understanding it, that alone can be an entire episode in itself. So first off, what do you mean by being stuck in the 80s? Well, think about the last 30 years, anybody who's listening to this. Think about what the world was like. And then think about the next 30 years. But think about our school system. Our school system is deploying people into the world and the workforce with almost like a 1950s, 1960s education and skill set. Uh, when it comes to investment, you know, all these guys show you all these mutual funds and the history of the Dow and all these things acting as if the Dow has been around for a thousand years and the 401k has been around since Adam and Eve, even though the 401k legislation was passed with the IRA in the 70s, late 70s and then enacted in the early 80s. And for very specific reasons, as the pensions were being taken out of the system. So if you look at what people are preparing for investment wise, they're preparing for a baby boomer who basically had the best stock market of any generation, uh, had a demographics boom, had a, the internet revolution, had all these great things, and that's what they're preparing for, but it's simply not there. And also the pension system isn't there. The Social Security isn't even worth being there because it's, it's underpaying seniors by underreporting inflation. So we're preparing for something that's no longer there. The tools, the, 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 the strategy. 
So what I think people should go back to is the thousands and thousands of years strategy of the rich, which is owning things that make money. It's very simple. People have gotten caught up into buy, even a stock. Buy stocks. I own stocks. My kids own stocks. But why are you owning stocks that don't share in the profits? The very purpose of having a stock is to buy a fractional share of a business. But somehow we've forgotten about that a business's ultimate goal is to share and bring in the profits to its shareholders and owners. It isn't to just hope that in 10 years from now, I'll be able to sell Berkshire Hathaway for more than uh, what I paid for it. Hey, how about sharing some of the profits? Yeah, we call those dividends. <laughs> but there's very few stocks today that are actually paying dividends. And even then, it's such a, a small, small return. I mean, the whole, I think the whole concept of a retirement plan or a pension plan is outdated. You know, there used to be defined benefit plans and that went, you know, the way of the dodo bird. And now it's, it's a defined contribution plan where it's now on your shoulders as an employee, not the shoulders of the employer. So you're building up your own employee based retirement plan. So, you know, the whole concept of having a retirement plan or a benefit plan has gone out the window. Now, you were talking about the stock market. Why are so many people in love with the idea of the stock market when in reality, it's mostly the insiders that are making the large returns? And, you know, we, the people, are really just hoping, and I emphasize the word hoping, that the value or the price, I should say, of those stocks go up in time. Wall Street's done a phenomenal job on conditioning Americans to think that that's where they should reallocate their capital, that they need to reallocate it immediately and, and hand it off to an expert who probably didn't even study uh, economics or finance as long as somebody who cuts hair and to give it to these salespeople and that this is diversification is, is buying more than one mutual fund. I mean, it really is unfortunate that the middle class has participated in this with enthusiasm because if you look at what they could have been doing, the opportunity cost of not buying single family homes over the past 30 years, think about it. That's insane. That's incredible. Not just the tax deduction, but by then, those, those baby boomers probably had those things paid off from somebody else. And those are pensions right there. I look at my single family homes as pensions. And um, you touched on something in the intro of this uh, interview that it's almost not even healthy. Think about trying to save money for 30, 40 years and then getting rid of your active income and then all of a sudden withdrawing from that pile of money. That's going to make you sick to your stomach. You're, you're going to have a scarcity mentality, like overtake your body that yeah, you don't have active income. Do. Withdrawing from all that's left horrible. Condition your brain to get passive income and get paid 21 ways. Well, that's the key. You know, Robert Kiyosaki says, you know, savers are losers. Why are the savers losers? Because if you're saving a pile of cash, it's being eaten away by inflation. But why not turn your earned income into passive streams of income, either portfolio or passive income? Now you can live off that same principle and never have to touch it for decades, for forever. Pass it on to your kids. That is the ultimate financial freedom formula. Yeah, it certainly is. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm teaching the children is, is to invest. And they go to the properties with us and they go to escrows and, and closings. I show them that, look, because I don't want to be like, you have to start a business. So I'm like, you guys do whatever you want. Of course, you know, it's like, I guess I'm like, look, whether you have a job and you want, if your dream is to be a police officer, or a fireman or a school teacher or a business owner, you have to know how to invest because when you make that money, you want to save and earn that and take that wealth and put those dollars back to work. Those dollar bills should work for you. So what do you consider a better investing strategy? We've been talking about the stock market and the, you know, the kind of the problems, if you will, of investing in stocks. But what do you consider a better investing strategy? 
Well, the ultimate investment strategy is real estate because of the leverage. And your your listeners will be very familiar with this, that you can control a $100,000 asset with $20,000. If I go in and buy Disney right now, most likely, unless I'm going to do something more sophisticated with options, but for all intents and purposes, most people will just buy $20,000 shares of Disney. I can use the $20,000 and control a $100,000 asset that someone has to have. It's a choice to do many of the businesses we engage with every day. Uh, having a home, having um, somewhere to uh, put your head at night, that is something Americans are not going to let go. So I think real estate is the best opportunity. If you're like, oh, I just don't want to be a landlord and I, you know, I don't care about the leverage, there's still, there are great ways. I mean, family offices have invested in private REITs for hundreds of years. Today, with crowdfunding, there are some smart people out there like Brett Crosby, the guy who started Google Analytics. He started a company called Peer Street. You can buy notes now in investing in real estate. You can invest in private equity funds that are crowdfunded like Fundrise. There are lots of ways to invest, whether you want to be more hands-on. But I'll be honest with you, I, I have found the most success in owning single-family homes just because of the cash flow. And then the appreciation is an icing on the cake, though I don't ever focus on it anymore since being burned so bad in the way. But the cash flow uh, from single-family homes, I mean, if you just focused on buying one a year, think about where that would put you in the next 10 years. Right? You don't know, you know well in over a million dollars of real estate. Yeah, that's a very simple, powerful retirement plan that generates passive streams of income and grows over time. I mean, that that most people can achieve that if they just... If they, as in two people, husband, wife, whatever the case is, can be a little bit frugal like you're talking about, save and redeploy those savings as quickly as possible into their single family home, the first one, the second one, the third one. And your example was brilliant because I use it all the time, the $100,000 single family home with 20% down, $20,000 down. You know, if you work hard enough, even if you have to work some extra hours or start a small business, it shouldn't be that difficult to save up twenty, twenty-two thousand, twenty-five thousand dollars per year as a couple, and buy that single-family home one year, and then another one the next year, and so on and so on. That's your ten-year plan right there. It's not that difficult to do. It's it's very achievable. So I love that. I love that example. So let's just drill down a little bit further into that because in your in your new book you talk about passive income being the key to you know anyone's financial freedom, if you will, and that applies you know, now and in the future. And I couldn't agree with you more on that. So it's the main thing. Yet so many investors still fall prey to the idea of investing. And I say that in air quotes for capital gains. So just briefly describe the concept of conventional retirement and contrast that, if you will, to the idea of capturing passive income, because people are still indoctrinated into this conventional retirement mentality. Well, first of all, they've all, yeah, they've been indoctrinated that they're going to compound on the average returns, which is total BS. I mean, let's be real. If the stock goes up 100% in 2019 and then 2020 goes down 50%, you're exactly where you started. Yet your broker will say, look, look at this brochure. It, uh, it averages 50% a year. You're not going to compound at the averages. They've done all sorts of studies. Investors actually lost money when the S&P was up. 13%, the average investor actually was down 4%. Long-term, they did a 30-year study from, I believe, 1992 to, um, or excuse me, 1982 uh, to uh, 19, or 2012. And it showed that the average investor was only had like 2.4.8% on average returns. So look, you're, and you're never going to time this market, but that's what they have the middle class thinking that they're going to do. Just keep buying these dips and uh, keep 
contributing to the 401k. And eventually, over the course of 30, 40 years, you'll be able to withdraw that money. But the biggest risk and the scariest thing in that entire plan is something nobody talks about. And I talk about in the book is you don't even know what your withdrawal rate is going to be for taxes. You would not borrow money from Chase, walk out and not know what you owe the banker in interest rates. But yet here we are, lowest taxes since 1931. And people have been convinced that, hey, defer your taxes for 20 years. For what? They're lower than they've been since 1931. We have a $22 trillion deficit, entitlements going through the roof, interest, uh, the national interest uh, will probably be the entire budget within 10 years. I uh, Taxes are going up. Taxes are going way up. And I do not want to pay taxes in 20 years. I'd rather pay them right now. So if you're going to do one, do a Roth. But certainly these other ones, uh, I think they're dangerous because you simply don't know what you're paying. The alternative is stuff that's offered on the show. Uh, the alternative you know, that I put in Don't Save for Retirement is a lifestyle where you can use the passive income to purchase more income, which is really fun. You can use the passive income to buy yourself a nice dinner, which is also fun. You can use the passive income to pay your utility bills. One thing I really felt great about was once my passive income paid for my basic bills, not my you know going to Ruth's Chris or something or, or, or buying a nice car, but the passive income paid for the electricity, the water, the groceries, and the basic housing and real estate property tax bills. That felt great. And that's really the day I planted the flag and said, okay, I'm financially free because the fact of the matter is my active income, other things I'm doing, they're now paying for luxuries. They're paying for discretionary spending. My lifestyle, though, is fully funded from the passive income. And that's what will feel great. And you can retire conventionally and not work, but I don't think you will. I think most people, this is just too much fun and they'll keep going. And perhaps the engineer who's making 100000 will have passive income and quit his job and do whatever he wants. Maybe he wants to be a, a horse instructor and, and, he, and that's his passion. Another thing I'd say is, and this you might disagree with me on this one, I'm a big believer in uh, paying off your home mortgage, not because it makes sense on math, because it doesn't, but because I just enjoy that wealth effect and that peace of mind. So I personally do advocate for people to pay off their home. And I'll tell you, it's almost like shadow income. If you have a paid off house, you don't have a $2,000 to $3,000 mortgage. So you might even need to make less passive income uh, if you really get rid of uh, bad debt, debt that doesn't, uh, isn't serviced by somebody else. Yeah, I see it both ways on the principal residence, although I will argue that you're in not every case, but in many cases are better off maintaining leverage on your rental properties for the sake of redeploying the equity into more rental properties and increasing your passive income. But I understand the peace of mind on your principal residence having it debt free, like, you know, paid off free and clear. So I won't argue with you on that one. So, you know, what you're saying is the key is to invest into streams of income, income streams. So just quickly, why do people get this so wrong? I mean, it's so it seems so fundamentally basic, but people constantly get it wrong and most people get it wrong. Because they only focus on the small nut in front of them and they don't think about <laughs> what they can do over five to 10 years. I mean, let's be real. They want to buy a penny stock or the S&P 500 because they think they can double, triple, or 10 times their money on something. And that's how they'll get rich. Everybody's got the science. I'm going to win the lottery. Yep. I'm make a lot of money on stock. And then I'm going to buy all these things on your show. No, no, no. 
I don't care if your passive income is $5 a month for the first few months, and then you up it to $20 a month and $50 a month. I promise you it will snowball. Just keep making those good decisions. And if you can, cut spending so you can put more money because it will snowball and compound. Compound it at first. Compound, roll it all back into to buying more income. But eventually, you're going to be able to spend that. But I think it's that's the defeating part is people say, what can I do with $1,000? I'm only going to make you know, $70 a year. Okay, make $70 a year and keep investing that and keep buying things that bring in more income. Yeah, I agree. So Daniel, as you know, our school system sorely lacks in providing our kids any kind of real financial education and teaching our kids about wealth and financial management not only prepares them, as you say in your book, for the future, but it reinforces the whole concept that we need and need to understand and utilize in going forward. I don't know if you know this, but we homeschool my daughter. And if I'm not mistaken, you homeschool as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so why is the school system so broken in this sense? We talked a little bit about it, that the, the fact of the matter is they're just simply preparing kids for an economy that's not there. They're preparing them for jobs. We have entered into the freelance economy and they're preparing kids for jobs and they're preparing them for college, which most of them uh, we'll get the degrees and not even it won't even apply to whatever they're going to involve themselves in their life. And colleges, unfortunately, are, are charging way too much, at least here in the States. So I, the school system is broken in many ways. Uh, a lot of it is, is these teacher unions. And we probably don't want to go down that rabbit hole, specifically in California. But, you know, you got teachers you can't even fire and they're bad teachers. So and it's very difficult. You know, my wife was a public school teacher. She was third grade for seven years. We have a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a nine-year-old. And she just tells me, she's like, you know, when I had 30 kids, they all learned differently. And it took six hours. She goes, in homeschool, I can achieve in 30 minutes, 45 minutes, what used to take six hours because it's customized. It's, it's, it's a very uh, exceptional way to teach a child and, and actually very natural. Well. I agree. You know, I, I, I know it's a privilege though. So I don't want to say like, hey, that's the way to go because I know a lot of people that can't do that. And, uh, or maybe they don't just don't feel comfortable doing that. I get it. But um, look, I guarantee you that if you can homeschool your child, I think you'll be, uh, it's an awakening experience. It's very uncomfortable and scary at first because it's not, you're not used to it. Maybe you weren't raised like that, but it is the way to go. And we teach our kids all about money. Uh, and we play games, Monopoly, cash flow. They invest in their own businesses and stocks. And we've adopted them. Just like a farmer doesn't wait till the kid's 18 years old to teach him how to farm. I'm not waiting till my kids are teenagers to teach them about money and to write a check. Shoot, we do all that. They sign the checks and throw them in the, in the ATM if we do deposits or they, they know how to do it on my phone. They'll deposit a check. So, I mean, look, I, I've incorporated them into the family business and investing immediately. Yeah, that's a smart way to do it. And I agree with you. You know, you, you mentioned that it's, it's kind of a privilege. You know, you have to be in, in the right situation financially and otherwise in order to be able to do that. So I realize that most people or a lot of people can't do that, unfortunately, but it's something maybe to aspire to. I would also argue that it's not necessarily the school's responsibility in the first place to teach our kids financial education. It would be great if they could. And then even then we wouldn't know if they were doing it properly and if they were teaching them the right things, because who knows, Wall Street could hijack the school system, then start, you know, pushing them down the directions of 401ks. IRAs, you know, the stock market, REITs and ETFs and all that good stuff. But 
But then it's left to the parents to provide that education. Unfortunately, most parents don't have the knowledge to begin with. You know, it's like the blind leading the blind. You can't teach your kids proper financial education and knowledge if you don't know it yourself. So does this become an unsolvable problem? I agree with everything you just brought up because it is the responsibility of the parent because let's be real, you know if school, we complain about schools not teaching money, but you know the second they started teaching about money, we'd bitch even more because they would teach the retirement cartels uh, teachings. They'd have these kids putting money in their IRAs from lemonade stands. <laughs> and anything they could do to get it to Wall Street, to transfer it to them so they could put it in all their vehicles and their fees and commissions. So it's probably maybe, you know, it is unfortunate they don't teach anything, literally. I mean, I think I learned how to write a check in sixth grade. But um, look, the, the, the parent is ultimately responsible. And just for parents listening, Cambridge University did a study Financial habits are developed by age seven. That's kind of scary. Do not wait. Start teaching your children great financial habits. Every time they want a toy, and especially the thing by the checkout, deny it to them. Deny it. Train that brain to not buy on impulse. Make them shop. I've had my kids look for toys. They didn't see the one they wanted. I was like, even though it was a pain in the ass for me, I was like, let's jump in the car and go to Walmart. Let's go to Target. Let's go check. I, I, I taught them to shop for the best deal. I was like, now let's go see what it's for sale on Amazon. Yes, it was time that I would have rather not done. I would rather just hit the Amazon button and been done with it. But I knew it was healthy for them to like, hey, don't just buy something. Look for the best deal. Find the best price. I love that. I love that. I've interviewed so many people that I've asked the question you know, about the responsibility of financial education. And virtually everybody agrees that it is the parents' responsibility, not the schools. And that, that includes G. Edward Griffin, the guy who wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island. Everybody believes that the school system is flawed and broken in, in that sense, like horribly. Yeah. So, you know, we have to take responsibility. So let's talk about your book and wrapping things up here. You have a new book coming out. I believe it's August 20th, which as of this recording is next week. And I love the title. It's Don't Save for Retirement. <laughs> it's such a great title. Tell us a little bit about your book. I think our audience really needs to know about it. Yeah, for your, for your audience, if they want, they can actually go to futuremoneytrends.com slash save. And they can read the first chapter and the introductory of the book. The introduction is starts where my wife and I are in a bankruptcy attorney's office. And the book is basically broken into three parts. It's, it's the journey that and the struggle my wife and I went through and the things that we did. And then the second half of the book is ideas that we're actually involved in right now. Where am I investing my own money? What have I learned? And of course, the third thing is really helping people discover why they want to even do this. What kind of almost snap them out? Like, what life are you living? Are you living the life you want? Because a lot of us have been so, just like people invest in retirement automatically, people have also adopted a lifestyle that they may or may not even want. You know, as far as what do they do? They work. Well, why, why, do, you, why do you do that job? Because it pays you a lot of money. Why do you spend 10 hours? Why do you drop your kids off at daycare? Why do you do anything? And that's, I really want to wake people back up and say, hey, you only have this one life to live. So you choose the life you want. Don't worry about what other people's perception or expectations are of you. That's a perfect segue to my last question, because I like the chapter you have. I think it was chapter one or chapter two. The, uh, it's the concept of wealth. 
And it reminded me of an episode that I did on the difference between being rich and being wealthy. And I have my own definition of that. How do you define wealth and what does real wealth mean to you? To me, wealth can be summed up like this. It is the ability to control your time. And so many people have surrendered to a boss or to needing a permission slip to take a week off and they become used to it. They're using their time in traffic, which leads me to the definition of wealth. And I believe it's ultimately, how are you going to spend your time? Do you want to wake up in the morning and do yoga? Or do you want to sleep until nine o'clock and stay up until two? Because that's what you choose. Either way, if you're wealthy, you can do whatever you want. Great summary. Great summary. Daniel, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap it up here today? Uh, just that if, if anybody is interested in reaching out to me, you can always go to futuremoneytrends.com. I love helping anybody, much like yourself. I, I mean, when these letters come in from people who've made changes and have done different things to improve their lives, that's what it's all about. That's, uh, that's what keeps me uh, you know, very passionate about learning about as many passive income ideas as I can. Cool. So futuremoneytrends.com forward slash save, correct? Yes, sir. Awesome. Daniel, thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. It's been great. And we're going to have you back on here in the near future. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.